Hey there, welcome to New River Church's podcast. We're really glad you decided to join us for our study called Killing Me, Why Dying to Self is the Only Way to Truly Live. We think this series has the potential to change our lives. If you're looking for some more information about New River Church, just check us out at newriverchurch.org. Let's go Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 to 23. Matthew chapter 7, 13 to 23. And uh, we're going to read the scariest passage in the whole Bible, at least in my humble opinion. Like this, this passage of, this, of scriptures just um, rocks me every time. So Matthew chapter 7, 13 through 23. And I'm going to invite you, would you please stand while we read the scripture? Just to, last slide. Last slide, at least. There we go. Back to the beginning slide there. Um, Chapter 7, verse 23, or verse 13. Enter through the narrow gate. This is Jesus preaching. Enter through the narrow gate. Um, I'm sorry, the slide just throwing me off. I'm not sure what you're doing. Okay. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Jesus, would you please take this word and speak it deep into our hearts? I pray in your name. Amen. Now you can be seated. Thank you. Have you ever had um, something critical happen in your life that you knew would change the course of your life forever? You know, a a turning point, something that just rocked you. And it was one one of the critical turning points in my life, in my 34 years of pastoring churches, actually, happened about 27 years ago. When a woman teaching in our Sunday school um, was found, not, not at New River, by the way, not our church, another church, but this woman was having an affair with one of our teenage boys in our youth group. And um, as horrifying as that was, the thing that bothered me the most was that it had gone on for several months. And there were other people that knew about it, and they didn't say anything because, well, we needed Sunday school teachers. Yeah. So their illicit, their illegal relationship was wrong on many levels, as you would agree, and we handled it. But then that really started me to asking this question. What's wrong with us that something like that could happen? Like, what's wrong with, with our system? What's wrong with us that we prioritize filling Sunday school teaching slots over holiness, see? 
And, and so our staff, it was this event that led our staff. We, spent, we ended up spending months after that, just this months-long season of prayer and introspection and seeking the Lord. And this led to a conviction, actually, that I've held ever since. And the conviction is this, that the church's primary job is not building buildings, and it's not building programs or propping up programs. The church's primary job is building people. And if we don't build people, we failed. And Jesus called building people making disciples. That was his word for it, making disciples. And I've come to believe that if the church does not make disciples, then culture will, and it'll be devastating. Culture does make disciples. Look around you at all the things that you see that disturb you, okay? The things that really bother you in our culture, and you are looking at the power of disciple-making. The power of disciple-making is that it impacts the way a person sees themselves and sees the world around them, and it impacts their values. It impacts their, the way they spend their time and their money and their relationships. This is why discipleship is so powerful, and it's why the church needs to get it right. So at New River, we have prioritized over the years building people. We really have it. We've spent 16, 17 years as a church, something like that, without a building, you know, meeting in school, in a school, and one of the things that used to say back then was we, we let God worry about buildings and we'll build people. Like that was the thing that just drove us during that season in our church's history. And so now we have a building and that's great, but I think we still do a pretty good job at focusing on people. Like we love this, it's a facility, it's a tool, right? It's an instrument, but we certainly don't worship this building, which is great. But can I be vulnerable with you for a moment? I believe that my leadership here at New River has fallen short because we've not been able to figure out how to multiply disciple-making relationships. Like, we, we've been good. I've personally discipled a number of you, and I've loved every minute of it. It's been marvelous. I love you. It's been great. But teaching you how to disciple someone else who can disciple someone else who can disciple someone else. Like that is something that we've struggled to figure out. We've fallen short there. And I'm not trying to be negative, so please forgive me. Don't want to be Debbie Downer this morning, okay? I'm just trying to honestly evaluate our progress, and I'm also trying to set up our study here in Killing Me for the next three months, because this does set this up, believe me. I believe that we owe it to the world to produce more Christ-like leaders, and we're under direct orders from God to actually make disciples. You know, the honesty of Scripture is refreshing. It's one of the things I love about the Bible. It's so real. And we have examples in the Bible of people that failed at this. Like Moses, think about some of the relationships, the famous ones in the Bible. Moses discipled Joshua. But who did Joshua disciple? Judges chapter 2 records the devastating impact of Joshua's failure to continue the cycle on the nation of Israel. How about, um, how about uh, David? David, King David, discipled his son Solomon. Solomon failed with his son Rehoboam. Rehoboam was a train wreck, see? 
what happened. And yet Solomon clearly talked about how valuable his father's input was on his own life. How about the prophet Elijah? Elijah trained up Elisha, you Bible scholars, but who did Elisha train? Big question mark. Nobody knows. Isn't that something? You have this, these powerful men of God, you know, and then it just dies after one generation. In fact, I think in the Bible, the, the longest-running disciple-making relationship that I can think of is the one that started with Barnabas in the New Testament, Barnabas, and then he raised up, he, he discipled Paul, who became the Apostle Paul. Paul discipled Timothy, so that's, you know, three steps there. And then who did Timothy? Again, big question mark, right? It drops off a cliff after that. So I guess my question is, what are we to do, right? I mean, if these, if these high-powered, big names didn't get it, like, how are we going to get it? What are we going to do? I've spent the last, I don't know, couple of decades trying to figure this out, studying Scripture, praying, asking God, how do we develop a system so that we can, with some tools, you know, to help people to do this, right? And, and here's where I struggle, ready? My struggle is, there are a lot of great materials that walk people through Bible verses and teach foundational truths, and those are all good. And over the years as a church, we've used a bunch of them. The Navigators has fantastic materials. We've done Rooted. We've borrowed stuff from other churches, their growth tracks, equipping tracks, and so forth. Like, all that has been really good. I don't think any of it has been bad, okay? It's been helpful, but here's the rub for me. How do you get deeper than just learning a few facts and begin to see hearts change? Like, how do I take my love for Jesus, you know, and, and transfer that into somebody else? Like, how do you do that? Have you ever felt that tension? Like, I can, I, I remember praying about that with my, when my kids were little. Like, God, I can, I can teach my kids Bible verses, and we did but how can I help them to know, to experience the same love for Jesus that I have? Like, how can I do that? That's where we wrestle, isn't it? And I want to see people intimately connected with Jesus. Like, I want to see people who just hear in the name of Jesus makes their heart throb. That's what I want to see. I don't want to see church people. I don't want to see religious people. I don't want to see nice people. I want to see people who have just this passionate, heart-throbbing love for Jesus, you know, who, who enjoy him, who like love to spend time with him because he's the best thing ever in their lives. You know, people who just relish their time alone with Jesus, like, I can't wait to get alone with Jesus today, you know? Like, that's what I'm looking for. How do we do that? How, how do we transfer this love for Jesus from my heart to your heart to somebody else's heart? Like, how does that happen? You might think, well, well, Roush, you can't do that. I mean, you, you just can't. That's too big. Uh, so we don't even need to try. You can't force people to love Jesus. It's impossible. You can't just teach a few lessons and then make them love. Like, that doesn't work that way. Love doesn't work that way, right? The best we can do, you might think, is we can just put a few truths in front of people and then maybe something magical will happen someday and they'll have this encounter. Like, maybe, I'm not satisfied with that. I think I'll spend the rest of my life trying to figure out how to help people fall in love with Jesus. 
That's what I think I want to spend the rest of my life doing, to get beyond just a few little facts and get beyond religious experiences and get beyond the warm fuzzies and actually into a love relationship, to love Jesus from the heart like I would love my wife, to love Jesus from the heart like I would love my kids or love anybody else that I would know, to love them like that, that's real, that tangible. You know what I mean? Are you with me? That palpable I believe that that's what's behind Jesus' scary words in Matthew chapter 7 that we just read a moment ago. In verses 21 and 22, you see this, what happened in Matthew 7? These people come to Jesus, and this is a portrayal of judgment day. This is the very end. And these men come to Jesus, and they come with all the great things they did for God. Hey, Jesus, didn't you see all the prophecies that we did in your name and all the healings that we did in your name and we drove out demons in your name and look at all the miracles that we did in your name? Like these guys had miracles out the wazoo, so to speak, you know? And Jesus was not impressed by any of it, was he? You see that? Like these guys, you know, Jesus is like, oh, oh, you preached a global conference. (sighs) So, so tell me uh, how, many, how many demons you cast out last week. Oh, that's great. That's great. I mean, he's literally unimpressed by the things that you and I would write books about, right? You and I would be going to conferences with this kind of stuff, and Jesus is completely unmoved by it. Why? One of my favorite Bible verses is Psalms 147, verses 10 and 11. Memorized it years ago. It says, the Lord's delight is not in the strength of a horse, nor in the legs of a man. The Lord delights in those who fear him, who put their hope in his unfailing love. I love that. God's not impressed by strength. He's not impressed by power. He gives that. You know what I mean? Any strength, any power you and I have, God's already given. He gave it to you. Like, it comes from him. So he's not impressed by that. What does impress him is your heart. Your heart melts his heart. That's what impresses God. God has plenty of high-powered people, see? But does he have your heart? And so Jesus turns to these men on Judgment Day, and in verse 22, he says, who are you again? I, I never knew you. See, that's scary to me. There's two things about that statement that absolutely wreck me. And the first one is this, that these men could do all kinds of miracles in the name of Jesus and not know Jesus. Does that, does that bother you? <laughs> like, 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 I know Jesus and I haven't done nearly the miracles that these guys have done, right? So here's these guys that don't even know Jesus and they're doing miracles in his name, number one. Number two, the second thing about this thing that just wrecks me is You know, Jesus is omniscient, right? Like God's all-knowing. You know that truth, right? And yet here Jesus says, I don't know you. How's that possible? That an omniscient, all-knowing God would actually have these men stand in front of him and Jesus go, I don't know you. I don't know you. How's it possible that God could know everything there is to know about us, know how many hairs are on our heads, know where you lie down at night when you wake up, know where you went this week, know what you ate for breakfast this morning or didn't eat for breakfast. Like God can know all of that and yet still not know you. Isn't that something? See, how does that happen? Well, it comes back to this word know. 
This word know is probably one of my favorite words in the Bible, in the Greek. The Greek word here is the word gnoskos. You want to say gnoskos? Everybody want to speak Greek? Gnoskos. There you go. Now you're speaking Greek. Baklava. There's another Greek word. I don't know. I'm hungry. So, gnoskos. What does gnoskos mean in the Bible? Okay? The word gnoskos, it literally means to know something because you've experienced it. You know, there's a difference between studying about something and then actually experiencing something. Like, take swimming, for example. Like, it's possible you could study swimming. Let's say that you intellectually understand all of the mathematics about water displacement. And you understand the chemistry of water and chlorine and all of that. And you understand the mechanics of how the human body glides through the water. Like you've studied swimming. you got a Ph.D. in swimming. But if you've never actually jumped in a pool, can you claim to be a swimmer? No. Like, if I came to you and I said, oh, yeah, I'm a swimmer. I'm an expert swimmer. I got my doctorate in swimming. I can tell you everything there is to know about swimming. And you say, well, Doug, but have you ever been in a pool? Well, no. No, but I'm a swimmer. I know how to swim. You would say, you're a fool, Rouse. You don't know how to swim. And you'd push me in the pool and see if it worked, right? Jesus this is, this, this is what Jesus is, this is the point that Jesus is making about knowing him. How many people sign a decision card, go through motions, study, memorize Bible verses, know a few religious facts and so forth, but have never actually encountered intimately Jesus Christ, haven't fallen in love with him. Can this person claim to know him? Can you claim to really know Jesus if you only know about him? Can you? In John chapter 5, verse 39 and 40, Jesus is talking to these religious experts, so these men were the PhDs of their day, and he says to them, you diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Isn't that something? They knew their Bibles forwards and backwards, and they knew all about Jesus. They knew all about the coming Messiah, and here he is standing right in front of their noses, and they missed him completely. How could that possibly be? In John chapter 17, verse 3, Jesus is praying, and here's what Jesus prayed. He says, now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I know the grammar there is a little bit awkward. At least I find it awkward. But the point is clear. Jesus defines eternal life, eternal living, as a person, not as a person going to heaven, but as someone who knows him. And again, the word is gnoskos. It's to know experientially, to know him personally, right? If you intimately know Jesus now, guess what? You've already begun eternal life. Isn't that great? You don't even have to go to heaven to start eternal life. You're eternally living right now because you know him if you know him, see? But here's the problem with knowing Jesus. Are you ready? Here's where the rub comes. 
And actually, the problem that we have in knowing Jesus is the same problem we have in knowing one another. There's a problem that gets in the way of all of our relationships. It stands in the way of us getting to know one another. It stands in the way of your, in your marriage. I'll tell you what, this here, marriage advice, right? Right here, you're about to get it. Here's the, here's the problem in your marriage. You ready? And it's the same problem that's in your relationship with Jesus, and it's the same problem that's in your relationship with anybody else. You ready to hear it? This might sting a little. You're selfish. That's the problem. See? The purest form of love, you think about love. The purest form of love is to give yourself away. It's focused on the needs of someone else, not on my own needs. Love is always living to the benefit of someone else. Now, granted, not enabling. You might, we might want to clarify that for some of you folks. It's not enabling somebody. It's living to the benefit of someone else. It's doing what's absolutely best for them in this moment, see? And as long as I'm concerned about what I'm going to get out of this, I will not experience love. And this is why Jesus made this statement. He said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Now, when you read that statement, you read that through a lens, a religious lens, Think about that. You read that through a church lens, and that statement seems like Jesus is asking way too much, doesn't he? Isn't it? It's like, I mean, can I have a religion that doesn't ask me for... Jesus wants me to die? Are you kidding me? Jesus wants me to give up how much? Everything? <laughs> too much. Maybe I can sign up for a religion that requires less. And you probably could. But when you read these words, not through the lens of religion but read them through the lens of relationship and read them through the lens of intimate relationship, they make perfect sense. See? The more intimate a relationship is, the more it will cost those in it. That's how it works. See? You read it with eyes of love. It's, it's, why, it's why you never go to a wedding and you see a couple stand there at the altar and they recite their vows and they say, I, I will love you with a part of my heart as long as it feels good to me. Said no couple ever, right? I mean, now granted, as you know, that's probably what a lot of couples mean when they do those vows, right? But they don't ever say those words, do they? Why? Because the more intimate a relationship, the more deeply committed the relationship, the more it costs the two people in the relationship. It costs everything. Love gives itself away. That's the nature of love. So the more of me there is in the equation, look, the more of me there is, the less there's love. And the less of me there is in a relationship, the more I experience love. Some of you, some of you married people need to start taking notes right now. It's right here. The less of me there is, the more love I experience, right? The more of me there is, the less love I experience. See? This is where many discipleship strategies actually fall apart, right here, because they don't emphasize loving Jesus. 
That's, that's part of the issue. The church has done a great job at like giving people a lot of facts about Jesus. And we can do that. That's super easy. We can memorize all kinds of Bible verses and doctrines and so forth. And that's, we can do that. But that's not actually loving Jesus, you know? We've taught people, in a sense, we've taught people how to swim, but we've never pushed them in the pool. See, and that's what we need to start doing. It's no wonder then that the world thinks we're fools because many of us are talking about things that we have never experienced. See, and this is the goal of our entire season. That's what we're doing. The, 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 we're going to dive deep into the heart of Christ. We're going to explore what it means to have an intimate relationship with Jesus. And so I'm calling this killing me. Why dying to self is the only way to truly live. Because it is. And my prayer is that this becomes a journey into greater intimacy with Jesus. My hope is that you and I don't just like walk away from this, you know, because this will be done just after Easter. My hope is that just after Easter, we don't walk away from this like we're just a few more Bible verses under our belt, but we walk away with it having an experience with Christ and being able to put some language around our relationship with Jesus, you know, and that's, that's relational. The Bible doesn't define your closeness with Jesus by using religious criteria. Nowhere in the Bible, listen, nowhere in the Bible will you find a verse that tells you pray more, read the Bible more, go to church more, give more in order to be a good Christian. You, you, that's not a Bible verse. You won't find that. Okay. Remember Jesus' simple but frightening words? Ready? I never knew you. That's what God's looking for, to know you. He wants to know you. God doesn't want to just know about you. He wants to know you, see? And this is the crux of Christianity, friends, right here. It's to know Jesus and for Jesus to know me. I want, to, I, I want that to be so real that when I stand there on Judgment Day, I don't even want Jesus having to look up my name in the book of life. Right? Let's see. Rouse under R. You know, I don't no, I don't want that. I want Jesus like, hey Doug, come on in. Don't you? Hey Rouse, I've been waiting on you for a long time. Get in here. Give me a noogie. I'd like that. Come on, Jesus. I don't I don't want him having to look up my name. Right? That's, that's the goal, to know him. See, and your relationship with Jesus cannot be defined by words. It just can't be. No relationship can. Well, you know, you ask, you ask a husband and a wife, oh, yeah, do you guys love each other more? Oh, yeah, how do you know? I don't know, we just do. You know, it's, it's a hard question to answer, isn't it? And it's the same in our relationship with Jesus. You can't, you can't define a relationship, right? So what the Bible does is this. The Bible gives us word pictures. And each of these word pictures, there's six of them, and they describe six different relationships, and each of them are more intimate than the previous and we're going to take the next three months to explore these six word pictures and to figure out how they apply to our lives. And, and that's what we're going to do. We're going to take, are you ready to do this? Are you interested? I am. I want so badly to, to, to know Jesus more intimately. And I want so badly to help you to experience that too. We've, uh, we've, so we've got this journal Right, I mentioned that earlier. You've got. I hope you get one, and it has some reading. It's important for you to do that. Listen, the most important part of this journal actually are the questions. 
At the end of each chapter, there's a bunch of questions. And I would encourage you to please take the time to work through the questions because they'll make you think and they'll, they'll, make you, they'll help you to evaluate your own relationship with Jesus. I think some of us have thought that we were closer to Jesus than we are because we define our closeness with Jesus in religious terms. See, oh, I, I, read, my, I read through the whole Bible last year, so I'm really close to Jesus. Well, not really. You, you, that's great that you read through the Bible, but I mean, you know, don't get me wrong, that's great. But that doesn't make you closer to Jesus, you see. So my prayer is that in this journey here together, we're going to discover like what that is and be able to put some language to our walk with Christ. And ideally, you need to get a discipleship partner. I can't stress this enough. I've, I know I mentioned it at the beginning, but would you please get a discipleship partner? Someone or maybe two other people with whom you're going to get together regularly to actually work through the questions. You say, what do we do? Well, just grab your journals and you guys just work through the questions together as discipleship partners. You don't have to work at this super hard. Just answer these questions together and be honest with each other and you know, be vulnerable with one another and authentic. And I think together you'll be able to benefit a lot from it. Okay, does that make sense? And here's what I hope. I hope that by the time we're done that this gives all of us some language to understand your own walk with God, but I'm also praying that it gives you a tool to help someone else to grow. Because, you know, I've had the privilege over the years a lot of helping people to grow, like meeting with people one-on-one -on -one and helping them to go deeper in their walk with Christ. It's so much fun. And, but, you know, every time I do that, I'm constantly thinking, what's next? What's the next step for this person? Like, that's what you have to do whenever you're doing that. You always have to be thinking, okay, what's God going to do next in this person's life? Where does he want to take them next? Because as their coach, you kind of are you know, coaching them to take that next step. Does that make sense, right? Well, you got to know the next step. And I'm praying that this gives you some of that language to be able to see some of the steps involved actually in growing in Christ so that then you can turn around and help somebody to do that. Is that cool? Like, you follow that? Like, that's where we're going. Because my hope is that every single one of us has a disciple partner that we're working with. Every one of us. And my hope is that we don't just do it here, but then we do it out there at home, your neighborhood, at work, wherever you are, that you're actively thinking about who it is that God's going to lead you to disciple next. And man, when we do that, whew, I'm excited to see the difference, okay? And then I'm going to ask one more thing, and worship team, you can come. This is, I should close with a heartwarming story. Let me think of one real quick. I don't have one. But here's, but I do want to close with this. I want to ask, invite you to do this. So I've been working on this for 10, a long time, <laughs> okay? And um, I'm kind of, here's how I'm viewing this. That we're all just guinea pigs together in this process. And that, and that you know, as you're working through it, please take good notes and then talk to me so we can do this together. Because I think that when, I think by doing it together, working through it together, like we'll be able to really develop something that I think will be useful for many years to come. And that's, that's my prayer and my hope. So, so would you please uh, feel free as we're working through this to talk to me and share your notes with me because I want to know, share your insights with me so that we can be doing this together. And um, 
Lord willing, we'll see God do something really great with this. Wouldn't it be a shame to spend your whole life being a Christian and then have Matthew chapter 7 happen to you? Does that not make your heart a little bit afraid? It does to me. And I'm not saying that to manipulate you at all. I want you to hear this. Like, I think the message is, let's stop evaluating our Christianity based on religious terms, and let's begin to think of it relationally. Remember, Jesus said, I didn't know you. That's what matters. I wonder sometimes if we've overcomplicated it. Can you believe that the God of the universe has been thinking about you since before the creation of the world? And he's been loving you before there was a you to love? And nobody was more excited on the day you were born than God because nobody had waited longer than God did for you to be born. And the God of the universe is so excited about his opportunity to walk with you. With you. Isn't that something? So this morning, as we close in prayer, I do want to make an invitation to you. If, you're, if you say, you know what? I want that with God. I want to know him. And, and I want him to know me. And whatever that looks like, but I'm in. That's what I want. That's what I'm longing for. Then I invite you to come. And let's just pray together and let's seal the deal here this morning, okay? And then let's begin walking together with Jesus. How about that? And we'll, we'll just leave the whole religion thing behind and the whole church thing behind because that's not what we're judged on at all. Let's just walk together with Jesus. Amen? Yeah. Well, that about wraps it up for today. We're really glad that you joined us. We pray that this message blessed you. If you're looking for some more information, you can check out the resources page at newriverchurch.org and you'll find the journal for this entire series. God bless you. Have an awesome day.